Hi everyone, welcome to episode 9 of 90th Minute Minute with me, Scott Noble. Today I'm joined by Aaron Tyler. Aaron is a FA mentor in Bristol. It's always fantastic to get people from different parts of the country on the podcast and today is another another reason why the podcast has been a success in lockdown. Hopefully we are coming to the end of the lockdown in terms of everyone being allowed to go out and I know a lot more people are allowed to exercise at the moment but in terms of normality, fingers crossed we're not far away from that. So Aaron, thanks to the, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for asking me, it's great to be involved. Great stuff. Um, so before we start, we get into the, the main part of the episode, anybody who's been on Twitter the past two days in a coaching capacity will no doubt have seen the, the session plans you've put on um on the on the um yeah. social media platform. How much of a challenge was that to, to compile in terms of, you know, session plans normally it the the participant side of things isn't necessarily much of a challenge, but because you've had to reduce it slightly to, to six players, how much of a challenge was that to put to put together? Um it, it, well, I guess it was tougher than I expected, to be honest. Um, there's loads of drills you can do where you, you might have two people passing to each other and or you might have them flicking up the ball, volleying it to each other, trying to bring it down and pass it back, etc. I, I mean, I, when I sat down to start thinking about it, I thought of hundreds of those. But they're, they're, they're just warm-up drills. They're just some small technique drills that I'm sure lots of coaches already do. So I tried to think about how we could still get something positional, something close to um, or closer to not opposed, but in a situation where there was um, decision-making to be made. There was, um, I guess, a bit of pressure from the from the mannequins being in different places, in awkward places. Um, and just to try and make it as close, you're never going to get there, but as close to realism as possible, really. I mean, as a coach, I'm, I much prefer to coach with small-sided games. I think everything you need to learn in football you can learn from playing a game um occasionally yes it's great to do the individual technique work um but where we've we can't play in a thing opposed at the moment and we can only do small small group uh small group activities yeah it was a bit of a bit more of a challenge than i expected to be honest yeah and obviously like i said when i first asked the question there's been such a huge response to to the sessions and to ask you the question to see are you surprised by it's probably not the right question but it must bring you a sense of pride to see that a lot of people are jumping on, jumping on that, and and seeing that you know this is this is probably the way forward for the next two three months. Yeah, I mean, I hope, well, I hope it isn't two or three months, but you're right; it could well be. Um, I'm delighted that uh, people, coaches, and and others are finding the the sort of sessions useful. Um, I started sharing a few bits and pieces of the work that I've done, templates, etc., um, at the start of well, shortly after the start of lockdown, and. Yeah, the feedback's been great. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's so many people out there that, that love football love, or soccer, depending on where they are in the world. And there are so many coaches that want to improve themselves. Like me, I'm constantly learning. And I think sharing a bit of information with each other helps. There's been there's been loads of stuff. I've, I've got a reading list on my Google Drive now, literally as long as my arm, of files, of drills, of um, articles and, and lists of videos to watch on YouTube from what everyone's shared. I'm not sure I'll actually ever get around to them, but I think, I think it's brilliant that everyone's uh, everyone's out there to help each other, really. Yeah, and I think it's a big indication of the fact that what you're saying there is there are a lot of people out there on, on social media that, because they can't coach at the moment, they're looking at alternative ways to, to improve what they do. And like you said before, you 
generally prefer to to work in small sided games, but it might give other coaches a different perspective and say, well, actually, this might work for my players, which I, I haven't necessarily tried before. Is that is that maybe something you've you've looked into, or has your opinion not necessarily changed for in terms of the small sided games is probably the best way to develop players. The reason I say small side games being the best is particularly in grassroots, we've usually got limited time with our players. Yeah, of course. Um, you might only train once and, and potentially twice a week, and each of those sessions is probably only an hour, maybe 90 minutes. Uh, if you compare that to academies and the, obviously professional game, there's nothing. So I'm, just, I'm of the opinion that the, the more you can get the realism involved in those short sessions or the short amount of time that you have with your players, and that's great. That's not to say that um, you, you shouldn't or should never look at drills. I mean, the, um, the the drill that I shared yesterday or the day before, the very first one, which is three players passing to each other in a line with the middle player receiving and then having to scan whilst the ball's on the move. I, I've used that plenty of times. That wasn't something I had to think about too hard because yeah. I do that all the time. All I did was put in a, a two-metre sort of barrier so that players didn't get too close to each other. Um, but I think that's really... Um, sort of good good drill just as a, as a warm-up to get people introduced, like an arrival activity to get the players introduced to the topic of the session and looking over their shoulder and just calling out um, however many fingers that the, their teammates holding up just means that they're, they're genuinely looking and genuinely recognising um, what they've got. And other cues that we might use is I ask the players to turn around and tell me what colour boots their teammates wearing or um, if when we're allowed to hold equipment, what colour cone they're holding up and and it's good. And I mean, I've done it with adults before and some of the finger selections, you can imagine the, the jokes that they're all having with each other. But um, yeah. <laughs> it, um, it's, it's a good warm-up activity. And, and, and I think there, there is a place for that. There's a place for that. It's just, yeah. would I want to spend an hour in a line without eventually providing some opposition and some context? No. But would we want to do 10 minutes right at the start of a session to get people switched on to the idea of scanning? Absolutely. So I think there's a there's a place for all types of these drills or small-sided games, really. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it, actually, with the colour colour of the boots, because, you know, kids these days, they, they have all sorts of different colour boots, and sometimes both boots are even the same colour as well. So it's, a, it's actually an interesting interesting way to look at it. Um, just want to go through your... Because we've, we've spoke up there about, obviously, your, your session planning, but I just want to go through your journey as a coach, because when we first had a discussion about coming on here, you... You'd mentioned that you'd you'd worked in quite a lot of regional talent clubs, which effectively is a girls' academy. So, if you just want to take us through your journey as a coach, and then eventually up to a mentor. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll try and I'll try and be quick. Um, I mean, I'm uh, 36 now, and I started coaching just before I finished school. Um, and so, when I was 17, 18, I started helping out with the first years at my school. Um, and that sort of, I'd already, I was already obviously mad into football. I was playing at the time, um, playing an okay level, but certainly not professional, uh, just up to the semi level. Um, and uh, from there, I, I've, I've always wanted to coach. Um, I still carried on playing, so I didn't always spend all of my time coaching. Uh, I did my level two way back in 2006, and then spent time with some youth boys teams then. Um, and uh, I became a player manager for the adult team that, I, that I've been playing at. I uh, did that for a few years. We had we had some success, recruited lots of, of different players, of quite a few international players, and I got an insight to how they play. Um, a sort of sort of big moment for me was working with a Spanish chap called Ruben, who'd already done his UEFA B license, and we coached together for a year. And I learned a lot from him just from observing him. Um, and then after. A while this was going back maybe 
four years ago I applied for a job with Bristol University to be the head coach of the women's team. Um, uh, I got that job and had a fantastic season with them, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and as it was that season that made me think it's, it was the right time to go and do my B licence. Um, and I felt well and truly out of my depth when I sat down on the first day on the B licence. You've got all sorts of people in their kits for the pro clubs that they coach at and you've got some ex-players and um, I thought this is going to be a big step up and, and, and it was. Um, but I'm pleased to say that I, that I did. Obviously, I passed and I, I, I held my own on the course. I mean... Um, I was asked before I finished the course whether I'd be interested in the mentorship role, so obviously I've done well. Um, and from there, um, moved on to to now to where I am now, I guess, really, as a mentor. And uh, I've, a bit like most grassroots coaches, I've had to balance all of the coaching I've done with previous jobs. And it was at the back end of last year, I was offered um, a role um, with a professional club to be the head under-16 uh, coach, which I accepted at the time, um, and in the, and I was due to start uh, a month later. And a week after I accepted it, the project I was on as a project manager at the time went belly up, and I wouldn't have made training that week. So unfortunately, yeah. I had to phone them back and go, "Look, I really want to do this, um, but you need to find someone that's absolutely going to be committed and available." Um, which they were, they were good with. They appreciated um, me being honest and said to stay in touch. I made a decision in February that that's it. I definitely want the full career change. I want to, uh, to stop being contract project manager as I was at the time and move into football full time. Um, the timing wasn't great with uh, COVID just around the corner. Yeah, um, things happen for a reason. And um, so now that's where I am. I'm still, still with my. It's still seeing the mental role once we're able to get back on the pitch and start mentoring again. And I'm coaching at um, four different clubs in RTCs at, at the moment. Um, and then looking the right full-time opportunity should have come along or I'll continue filling my time with, with a variety of jobs as I am. So it's it's been a bit of um, a different approach maybe to some who knew right from the start they absolutely wanted to, a career in coaching um, or others that fell into coaching I, I somewhere in between. I guess I always loved coaching, always wanted it to be a part of my life. I wasn't sure if it was going to be my full-time career. Um, but as I've got older, I've got a young family as well now, but you, you tend to realize start to realize what's really important to you and um it just doesn't feel like work when i'm out coaching on the pitch when i'm thinking about planning a session when i'm doing any of the organizing it just genuinely doesn't feel like work this doesn't feel like work it's just just like chatting to my mates about football it's just i mean it's just happens to be that i get paid for it which is brilliant and then people have always said if you love what you do you no longer have to work so hopefully that's where i'll be for the for a few more years to come yeah it's an interesting theory and i'm, I'm sure it's one that a lot of coaches either grassroots or people who work in full-time football will will definitely back up and I know I can certainly speak for that as as a coach as well that you know generally when you you put on your uniform it's it's not your shirt and tie it's it's a tracksuit and you know yeah it's 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 certainly different a majority of jobs out there that you either put in construction uniform on or you're putting like this like I said a shirt and tie on it's it's definitely different and it's, it's something that we're we are in a privileged position to do um, and it's something that you know people people do take for granted sometimes, which they definitely shouldn't. Um, as a mentor, obviously you haven't done done it as long as you probably want to do. But we speak about as coaches differentiation of players in the time that you've been a mentor. Have you actually seen how how different how approach how approachable you have to be towards the coaching side of the game in terms of you know everyone's different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. 
the mentoring has been fantastic. Um, I mean, it's great to work with the other coaches. The the enthusiasm of the coaches is, is brilliant. They're always always searching for more and, 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 and challenging you and, and really receptive for any, any time and information and guidance you're able to give. But also from my perspective, to be perfectly honest, it's been a fantastic um, way to develop. It's rare that you can be in a coaching session and sit back and, and think, well, what would I do now? Yeah. as a coach, you're usually there. You're right in the moment. You've got 15 children um, uh, or older or adults, if you're working with adults, all asking you questions, all expecting you to be right on point. And sometimes it's difficult to change and adapt on the spot. And as a mentor, I can sit back in a distance. I can observe the coach, observe the session and think, well, how would I change things now? Or where could this get even better than it already is? And, and it's such a luxury to have because it really gets you thinking. And also, we all coach differently. Um, and I think that's great that we should all coach differently. We're all individuals at the end of the day. And yeah. To see how other people coach, I pick up so much from them. Um, and then, to, I mean, to get to your, your point, Scott, of all your question about how we treat different players, I, I think it's 100%. And I guess that's eventually what separates uh, an average coach from a good coach from a great coach is how they recognise what their players need and, and how they're going to get that message across. Um, I was... I've been reading Pep Confidential, or both books, um, and in there talks about dealing with um, Ribéry and uh, Philip Lahm when he was at Bayern Munich. Yeah. And he very quickly recognised that Ribéry was a give me one instruction, then let me go and play type player, whereas Philip Lahm could literally spend two or three days non-stop talking to you about a specific tactical piece and then the, the topics would go off into all different areas of football and life and everything else. And... And that was just the way that he consumed and dealt in, with information. And from Prebury was much more, yep, I've, I've now done that bit, give me one new instruction at a time. And then, and then he'll want, he wanted to go play and to try it out and, and see how it actually did or worked for him on the pitch. And we all, we all learn in those different ways. And Pep was able to deliver both. And I think the great coaches are. I think I could just imagine Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. He's going to deal differently from... Um, Alexander Arnold, the trainer Alexander Arnold, than he will from Van Dijk, for example. Yeah. Maybe even be dealing differently between Mane and Salah because we either learn from doing, from watching, from hearing, and, and all these other things. And I think that the best coaches amongst us, I say amongst us, I'm not trying to put myself in the same sentence as you. <laughs> you never know, we'll never know five years' time. <laughs> well, yeah, and the rest. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think that. Um, yeah, every coach is different, and, and 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 that's something that I'm constantly aware of with my own coaching as well. That I, I need to say one thing to one player, and then something different to another, and still try and get the the, the right results from both. Yeah, vital. yeah, definitely. And as as a FA mentor, you said it at the very start of your your sort of your story there about the fact that everyone everyone is different and everyone's got their own story and their, their own journey as well so when you yeah. when you go and observe observe these sessions do you go in with a a certain plan in terms of right week one i will do this i will stand back and watch i'll do it for the first two weeks three weeks whatever it may be or does it literally just depend on the, the environment you're in um there's a plan for the first week certainly and the first week is is, is clearly observation um it's I just introduce myself, we introduce each other if we haven't had the chance to do so properly beforehand, and then I'll just sit back and observe, try not to say anything till the end of the session. Um, and, um, and and I guess during that first session, there's only really three key things that I'm looking for. 
Uh, one is the environment. Has, has the coach created an environment that is welcoming to players where um, they've, they've, they've got, got the right thing, they've got the right equipment in place, they've got all of their sort of safety measures in place, and it's, a, it's an environment where that people can learn in. Yeah. Um, secondly is, have they got their players' respect? Um, is it, and is it a, a mutual respect, so coach-player respect? Um, and that's at any age, so... Um, Will, 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 will players be going up to the coach and feel comfortable asking questions? Will the coach give them the the, the, the fair amount of time that they deserve to answer their question? Or and at the same time, if if the coach is talking, are the players paying respect and, and, and paying attention, etc. Um, and and if they're not, that's not necessarily a criticism of the coach, but it's just without the right environment and without that sort of mutual respect between coaches and players, it's very difficult for anyone to learn or to, to, to grow. Yeah. Um, and once you've got those two things in place, the third one is to start to look at the, I guess, a bit more of the technical detail and the, and the type of delivery and, and are the messages coming across in, in, in a good fashion. And um, most of the time, those three boxes get ticked and then we're down into the details. It, it's like, okay, so you, you want to get, um, you, you, like the session that I just shared this week for, for socially distancing, where it's focusing on scanning, which is a particular skill for central midfield players because they're, they're the ones that got the 360 degree view of the pitch or yeah. need to have. Um, and so we might be saying, right, are you using the right language, the right encouragement to get your midfielder to, to start doing that, start scanning over all, all 360 degrees, etc. And then we'll get into the details. Um, but it it really is tailored towards the coach. Um, they'll come to me with different questions, different scenarios. It could be anything from what happens on the pitch to even outside the pitch, dealing with parents, for example. There's a lot of coaches are put under a huge amount of pressure by parents and they would like support and advice on how to deal with that. Yeah. They want to know about the physical side of things, about dealing with injuries, dealing with playing time, balancing out the need to win with player development. And it covers a whole host of different areas and, and whatever the coach wants to do then we'll, we'll tailor a tailor a program to, to help them achieve that really great stuff do you ever find when you're actually observing sessions or whether you're assisting the coach where has, has the coach ever asked you or have any coaches ever asked you to to actually take over the session and for them to do what you do effectively and observe what what they want uh they have yep um it's uh, it's it's not necessarily because they want me to do what they're trying to do. It's sometimes because it's something new that they haven't seen, or they um, they just want to see a different approach. Um, to be honest, it's something we as a as a group of mentors we try to avoid um, because we've not been. I get part one. Firstly, we've not been taken on because we're good coaches. Yeah, it's important that the, the mentors have been taken on because they're good mentors, and it's a different skill. It's like saying that the best player in the team is a make the best coach, and it's yeah. not necessarily true. And being a good mentor doesn't mean that you're any better coach than than the coach that you're mentoring. You're just able to help them get the best out of themselves. Um, but I have been asked, and okay, and I have. Um, I can just think of one example really where where I've done, where I've done that that the coach was struggling with a particular situation. Um, which I, I, I'd um, sort of spoken to him a couple of times to try and get tips and advice. And um, for whatever reason, again, this is coming back to how we all learn, he felt it would be better if he could see it. So rather than me just telling him, which is one way of people learning audio, he wanted to see it, wanted to see it in action. So yeah. we asked the players if that was okay. Funnily enough, I was actually being observed by 
my team leader at the time, um, my mentor team leader from the FA, and he said, yeah, that, that's fine, it's appropriate at this time for you to maybe give a demonstration. Players were all comfortable, I jumped in for five minutes, just a little bit, and um, the coach I was working with was, was pleased, he picked it up really quickly, and then the way he delivered after that changed almost instantly. And he's clearly just someone that prefers to see something rather than be told something for them for them to pick it up. And yeah. he was great. So in that instance, it worked well. Yeah, that's fair enough. On the flip side of that then, when you're mentoring a coach, have you ever, I'm guessing the answer is yes, but have you ever picked up anything within the session that isn't necessarily coaching? It might, the coaching detail, it might be something that, in terms of the way they engage the players, is, is there anything that you've picked up and when I'm going to take that away and I'm going to use that to my to my oh, yeah. best ability? Absolutely. No, the, the, my coaches should watch out. I'm the biggest thief of all time of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I um, yeah, absolutely. There's something you can learn from every coach. Um, I believe. Um, I mean, I watch. I'm a lead female game coach mentor so not uh, mentor to female coaches but any coach that's working in the female game right. in Gloucestershire um, and whilst I have worked with um, females for go- both girls and, and, and women nowhere near as much as I have worked with the male side of the game and the approach is different it's different um, uh, for a number of different reasons um, I know and okay that can be generalist some, some approaches will work with both males and females but in general you, you, the coaches need to have built a good degree of trust with their players, with female players. They um, certainly, in my experience when I worked with Bristol Uni women, that um, they were incredibly, incredibly polite, incredibly like, not reserved, but didn't want to all step forward and say, "This is what I think. This is what we should be doing." Coach, what about this coach? As I have experience with male players um, who are much more comfortable coming forward. Yeah. Um, the, the, the females that I worked with Bristol Uni, in particular, they were much more like, "Okay, well." We want to know that we can trust you first before we put our neck out and suggest anything in training. We we want to know that if we say something that isn't right, you're not going to hang us out to dry. Okay. That wasn't verbalised to me, but that was the impression that I got. After three or four weeks of us working together two or three times a week, we we built up a really good, and as I mentioned before, really good mutual respect between us. And then and then it was non-stop. So floodgates were open, and we were having lots of good dialogue, and players coming up to me during training, before training, after training, asking for ideas or. So on our group WhatsApp would say, what about this? What about that, Aaron? And um, The really good coaches that I observe in the female game, you can tell that they've built up this relationship. That, and you can just see that particularly, like I say, with females, that they absolutely trust their coach, that they, they're in the right environment. And, and that's something I try and take away, because coaching, is what we can, we can get, we can get um, lost in the technical details sometimes and forget that we're working with human beings and we need to build that human relationship really um, and they're the best bits that I've observed from others yeah it's interesting I've had a discussion with one of my guests a few weeks ago about the comparison between working with boys and girls and what you seem to find is the common trend is that boys are generally extroverts in terms of actions um, mm-hmm. women are generally introverts but it's the opposite when you gain that level of trust it's the inquisitiveness of the the women that generally t- tends to improve coaches is that something you found? I, I think that with the female players I've worked with, so I can't speak for all female players or all coaches that work with female players, but the ones I've worked with, um, there's a lot more questioning as to why. Yeah. Okay, so you've asked me to go do this, coach, and you've asked me to, I don't know, go press that player here. Why am I doing that? How will it help my teammates? How will it help us be successful? And, and they're perfectly good questions. Yeah. 
Um, and then there'll be male players that'll ask those questions as well. Um, and I am, of course, generalising, but a lot of male players go, right, I'll do that. Yep, it's no problem. I'll just go do it. Or, or completely, no, I don't agree with you. But there's just a little bit less of the questioning. And, and actually, sometimes, as a coach, you've got to say, look, look guys, we've got less talking this session. We've got to get on with it, actually. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to balance it out as well. Um, uh, there's good, good points and bad points to being inquisitive sometimes. Um, and, um, yeah, just, it's just a much more of a learning um, I'm personally, I'm quite, a, I guess, a deep thinker when it comes to football. I guess most coaches are by nature. And so I, um, when I work with players that are that a similar personality and want to know the, the whys and wherefores, I'm more than happy to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I find it, I find it really mutually beneficial. Interesting. Interesting. If anybody is in the Gloucestershire area, lucky enough to have Aaron as a FA mentor, there's a few trade secrets in the podcast, so just be wary of that. Um, yeah. A few weeks ago, you did a video about why you believe fullbacks are the most important position on the pitch. And I watched that video and I was actually really, really interested to find out why that was. But for anybody that actually hasn't seen that video, why is it that you think that's the case? Yeah, so what I was um, pointing put across, I think that fullbacks in the modern game are one of the most important and effective attacking players when you're in possession. Um, so the example I used was Liverpool, um, which hurts as a Man United fan. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, I can't knock them for being a great team at the moment. Um, no. And obviously, Alexander-Arnold and um, uh, Andy Robertson uh, have both been lauded as, as incredible players. Um, what I went on to do in the video was highlight why I think they're important um, and, and why they're um, important in the attacking sense, at least. And it's because you can't really pick up a fullback. A fullback that's playing deep is like a deep line winger in modern football. Um, and so it's very, if you, you can't go and mark them early on in the, in the phases. So if Liverpool are playing uh, out from the back, you don't really want to go and commit players to trying to, to mark them. Yes, there will be teams that will high press, but they'll only high press generally once they, during a transition, really. During transition, yeah. they'll get a high. Uh, counter press immediately to try and win the ball back. There are very few teams as, as the team, as the opposition, are playing out, say, from a goal kick that will actually man mark at that point. Um, the reason for that is because you want to have cover at the back. Your very few teams will want to go one to one. Having said that, I was on, lucky enough to be on a webinar with Tanya Oxtoby, who's the head coach of Bristol City Women, yesterday it was, I think. And um, she on, was giving us an example of their game against Man United um, and the United women pressed City very, very high and did go man for man. Even at the back, they were happy to be 1v1 against City. Um, uh, and like I say, that is rare, but there are examples of it even in the professional game. But, so it's, getting back to the point about the fullbacks, it's difficult to, to go and mark them early on, like I say, in, in the build-up phase. And so then they're free and then they move and they move and particularly um, two Liverpool fullbacks will move very high and wide. And that allows Mane and Salah to play as traditional inside forwards. Um, if anyone's read Inverting the Pyramid, they'll be aware, they'll be aware of a traditional formation from 50, 60 years ago was more, um, a bit longer than that, was 2-3-5. You play with two at the back, three which was and five forwards, and the inside forwards were very key to that formation. And in possession, we're starting to see some sort of return to that. So your two at the back will be your centre-backs. You'll then have three midfielders, um, in Liverpool's case, it's Fabinho, Henderson and Wijnaldum, and then a front five. 
But the five in Liverpool's case include two fullbacks. They're just playing as incredibly wide wingers. Yeah. Why do they do that? Because then it allows Salah and Mane to come inside. And as a back four, you're thinking, okay, we can between the four of us, we'll mark the front three for Liverpool. And then suddenly these players appear on the on the on the wide channels. It's like, well, who's picking them up? And if a fullback gets dragged out, then that leaves an inside forward free. And then you've got these centre backs debating about who goes in there. And if the fullbacks don't get dragged out, then it's probably because you called your wingers back. And suddenly, just because they're in that formation, you're you're unable to get an attack going forwards. I mean, Man City use their fullbacks differently. They actually Pep gets his to play as inverted fullbacks, so they will come um, traditionally inside into the central midfield positions, and he'll get his front uh, his wingers of the front three hugging the touchline. Yeah, I mean, you'll see you literally see Sane sometimes he was sat in the crowd a couple of seasons ago. <laughs> he actually um, is sat in the crowd um, now, isn't he? <laughs> Well, he is now, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But even Sterling and Mares, they're told to stay really wide. Yeah. And that's because it creates space for De Bruyne or Gundogan or David Silva to attack those inside channels. So there's different ways of using your fullbacks between those two, just those two teams as an example, that allow other players to get into really dangerous positions. Um, and I think that due to, due to the nature of, I mean, those two in particular, the Liverpool guys being incredibly fit and having huge amounts of energy getting up and down, it's a nightmare for another team to, to really decide to set themselves up how they're going to deal with them. They're never in the same position for more than five seconds. So yeah. if you were to try and man mark them, you'd be chasing them around all over the place. Well, a point I brought across in that video is, yes, they're brilliant players, but they can only do what they do because of the other players in the Liverpool team, in particular Wijnaldum and Henderson. And they, they will drop into covering roles, covering deeper positions that allow the two fullbacks to get forwards. I mean, I was speaking to a close Liverpool friend of mine the other day, he's also a coach, and he commented on the video saying, he goes, I'm glad you pointed out the hard work that Henderson and Wijnaldum put in. He goes, because there are some Liverpool fans that think they don't score enough goals or they don't get enough assists. Yeah. But in the way Liverpool is set up, it's not their job. It's, their job is to, to provide cover, to provide that fulcrum, provide that um, uh, situation where the two fullbacks are able to get forwards and cause damage. Um, so that's my opinion. Um, when I coach teams, I do... Do work hard with the fullbacks. Um, young fullbacks, in particular, haven't always been told to get forwards. Um, they're coached by at grassroots level, coached by coaches that would, would have always played with fullbacks that sat. I mean, there's there's obviously lots of jokes that go around about no one wanted to grow up being Gary Neville, but <laughs> now would Gary Neville actually make it as a fullback? Would he, yeah, would he, would true. Yeah, it's true. He'd, be, he'd potentially be now a ball playing uh, centre back in a, in a back three potentially. So it's. Um, if things are changing and, and, and as coaches we need to keep up keep up to speed with it really yeah and like you mentioned before about that's what makes a, a good coach isn't it keeping keeping the trend up with in terms of formations in terms of you know how how to beat the opponent not just on the 11v11 but also in a 1v1 situation and Liverpool have no doubt proved that this season that the fullbacks are ultimately the way to, to do it um, so it's an interesting an interesting way to to um, portray your opinion on the fullbacks, no doubt everybody else will. Well, not everybody else, sorry, but other people will have different opinions. But as long as you can, you can back it up and see, you can say this is why, this is why this is the case. And to be honest with you, if you look at Alexander Arnold and um, Robertson, I don't think anybody could actually argue with you in that in that sense, especially this season. I, th- I think that their attributes um, allow them to play that way, don't they? Yeah, um, exactly. If you yeah. Had- if you had different fullbacks, so, I mean, at United, we've got Wan-Bissaka and Shaw um, uh, or, or Brandon Williams. And 
yeah, okay, they're attacking by certain um, fullbacks from the 90s. They'd be classified as really attacking. But in the modern game, they sit a lot more. And wan yeah. is known for being, people say he's a proper right-back because he can tackle and he can defend. And it's like, well, it's just it's just it's what his his attributes are. Yeah, and exactly. So United, Solskjaer's got the team sitting quite deep now and playing on that counter. Um, because And he's got he's got the players that can sit in and do that and stay disciplined. And then they create more space for for the wingers in, in higher up that way. And it's just, I guess the phrase is horses for courses, isn't it? And as yeah. a coach, you've got to adapt to what your players got and also get your own philosophy across at the same time. And something I've I've been really keen on, you know, obviously before the lockdown and before coronavirus came about was sometimes I would watch watch a game as a fan, but I would also then watch a game as a coach and I would actually pause the game and look at certain scenarios on the pitch and go, well, how is this actually developed into a into a scenario where this plays on the ball and like yeah. you say there about uh, Man United the left backs and left back and right back whoever's playing there a lot of it seems to be based on a phase of playing training whereas Liverpool it's just a case of just go and join in and you know we'll worry about the defending a bit later because we've got Van Dijk there it's all who's yeah. almost two players he is, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's, he's brilliant. There's still that clip that goes around from last season, I think it was, where he happened to be two, on his own against two attacking players yeah. and managed to stop them from getting a shot on target without actually touching the ball yeah. or trying to make a tackle, even just by positioning himself. I mean, he is he's definitely the world's best centre-back at the moment. Um, and so you can take that. But I think also we've got to remember that Klopp's been at Liverpool for five years now. Um, he's had much longer than most modern pop flight managers will get in terms of being able to get his way of playing across to the players yeah um he's had a lot of that squad for most of that time um obviously he's brought in new players as is needed and i think that as coaches particularly at the grassroots level we've got to remember that our fullbacks aren't going to play like uh, alexander arnold and robertson within a few weeks or even a season or even with the whole of their youth playing career potentially if we can get, if, if that's the end product for a fullback that we're working with, we and we think there's 20 building blocks, if we can get six to, to eight, maybe 10 of those building blocks in place, then we've done a good job as coaches. Yeah. I think we've got to be careful sometimes that we don't expect players at grassroots or even at academy level to, to go straight into that straight away. I mean, it's going to take time. I mean, I think the Liverpool hierarchy. A, did a great job in getting Klopp. I was gutted when he <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and, uh, and B, they've given him the right amount of time. Everyone goes back to United and Ferguson, but he had six years before he won the league. Yeah. And that was because event the uh, the board stuck with him and, and Liverpool board, yes, they've had a Champions League and, um, in there, but they stuck with him because it, it takes time to develop a way of playing. Um, um, and I think that... I think that... Yeah, it's just we as grassroots coaches ourselves, um, we need to remember that, that that things do take time and have lots of patience with our players. Absolutely, and like you say in the professional game, it's a it's a poison chalice sometimes, and you know you don't get the time you want. But Liverpool, as other clubs, you look at maybe Burnley, you look at um, yeah. potentially potentially Wolves, other clubs like that. You know they they do give managers time to to get that success, and it's it's really good to see as a. It's obviously not as painful for me as it is for you being a Newcastle fan because I can, I can sit back and know that for the time being, at least Newcastle aren't going to have any great deal of success. But for you, I, th- I think it, like you're saying it is probably probably painful to admit that they have been the best team in the league this season and potentially seasons to come as well. 
Well, then they are a great team. I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to talk about United too much, but <laughs> with, hind- with hindsight, maybe Moyes should have been given more time. Maybe um, Van Gaal should have been given more time. But certainly, if you chop and change, you've, the only club I can think of that have chopped and changed and maintained success is Chelsea. Yeah. Um, I don't know, and I quite don't know quite how they've done it. They've always got very good coaches in, yeah. so that's part of the reason that they've done it. But, but most of the time, you have to you have to stick with it. I mean, Bournemouth have stuck with Eddie Howe, and uh, he's yeah, done Bournemouth, incredible. Of course, yeah. mentioned, mentioned Sean Dyche, and and going back a few years now, Stoke did incredibly well under Pulis, um, and eventually someone went, yeah, but we want more exciting football, and and they went down. Didn't so work. <laughs> I think that sometimes you just got to be careful what what you wish for. Yeah, um, absolutely. The coach's time. Absolutely, great discussion on that. Um, really, really um, appreciate what your opinion on that one. Um, last thing before we finish, then you, again, you mentioned when we first we first got chatting, um, about your eagerness to start looking at the psychological side of the game. Is there anything you've looked at so far? Um, that's you know, that's furthered your keenness to keep involved in that or. Um, is there anything you looked at previously for that to to get you into this? Um, I guess from my own uh, experience as a coach, um, the very first time I took over an adult team, um, I was playing in the club's first team at the time. The reserve team manager um, stepped down uh, at Christmas um, and I hadn't had a great start first half of the season. We're in danger of going down. and um, I said that I'd... I'd, I'd I'd stop playing and, and, go, and go manage reserves and I, I played a bit as well but yeah. we had the same players and we didn't this is only amateur level so we didn't have a huge amount of capacity to go get different players or to or like dramatically change training but I think all it was because we, we did well in the second half of the season we got quite a few points um, all that I did really was get the guys loving football again it become a bit of a chore um, and it's, they're not getting paid for it. And if you're not loving it, you're not getting paid for it. Why on earth are you doing it? Yeah, yeah good point. Um, and they, yeah, it was just, it was just, it was just, a, it felt simple at the time. But now that I've learned more about the psychological aspect of coaching, I realised that there were just a few things that I did that, that helped engage. And just, for example, a common cause. So the common cause very easily was it was easy for that team because we had to stay up. Yeah. We were bottom of the league. We had to stay up. And, and does it matter to you guys? Do you imagine, yes, we're not going to win a league. We're not even going to get close to being in the promotion places, even if we win all our games now. All we can do is, is, is stay up. Um, and let's, let's get behind that. Let's have that as our common cause. Let's all fight for that. Uh, we had players from, it's the Bristol team. A lot of us hadn't grown up in Bristol. We're not um, from Bristol originally. So we came from all sorts of different corners of the country and, and a couple of players from abroad. And, we're saying, right, let, let's turn this into our team. Let's all fight for each other. Let's all have this purpose. Let's go for it. And let's just be proud. Even if we do go down, let's be proud of the effort that we've made. And these are things that I was saying, and I was just a young coach in my 20s. I'd say it's my first adult coaching job. Um, that psychologists will, that I've read and listened to since say so is really important. So Bill Beswick's quite a um, famous psychologist, which you might be aware of. He's worked with... Um, Steve McLaren at Derby worked with him over at Twente he's worked with the England national team he's worked at Man United I think that's probably where he first met um, Steve McLaren yeah. um, and he is I highly recommend anyone look him up there's some great stuff on YouTube and also a book that he's recent that I'm reading at the moment I couldn't say it's recently released but it's probably a bit older 
um, is called Goal, it's the art of winning. And, and in there, he talks about lots of different practical psychological things coaches need to bring in that you can bring in with any team. So uh, common purpose, values, um, what does hard work look like? I actually did a, um, a Zoom call with an under-13 team that I uh, coached um, the other day. And um, I, I didn't know the team that well. I only started coaching them this season, well, actually just after Christmas. And so to get them to know the players better, this is before lockdown, I'd ask them all to write down their fantasy football team from the Premier League, no more than three players per team, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But importantly, to tell me why they were choosing each player. And uh, got all the responses back in. And um, it's, in, it's a really good insight when you get players that you work with to do something written, because you get to see how much effort they wanted to put in or how much thought they put in, how much, whether they're someone that communicates with a few short words or whether they put in long sentences. And it tells you a bit about their character. But the, the sort of reasons they were choosing players, yes, they put down things like, oh, he's great at dribbling, he's great at shooting, he's great at heading. Yeah. The one that really stood out was um, he's really calm on the ball, he's composed under pressure, he's a great leader, he works incredibly hard for his team, he's always supporting his teammates. And I was like, guys, this, on the Zoom call, when we, when we managed to all get together, I'd summarised all of the different phrases they'd used and put them in a little PowerPoint for them and said, these are your words, these aren't mine, this is, this is why you pick players. So can we use these reasons and, and make them our core values as a team? Can you all decide that you're going to support each other when, when things aren't going well? Are you, can, are you going to decide that you're all going to support each other when things are going well and congratulate each other? Are you all going to work hard? And what does hard work look like? And then we had a big discussion around, well, it's running lots. And then someone said, well, how does the keeper run lots? How do we know whether our keeper's working hard? And they said, well, he's communicating all the time. He's concentrating on the game. And just by using their own language, we were able to come up with a really good um, core philosophy for for who we wanted to be as a team and how we were going to behave as players. And I think, um, I'm, I'm, obviously we're not back on the, on the grass yet, but I reckon when we get back that these values will be in more evidence than they were before. Because I think everyone opened up to each other and realised that they're all thinking the same thing, but sometimes they're a little bit nervous around their peers to admitting so. Um, and I, I just find the whole psychological side of the game fascinating um, and it's something I'm definitely going to continue trying to, to learn more about Yeah and I think when since we have been away from the picture it probably gives people a different an opportunity to see a different perspective of the game so yeah. psychologically you know how how is lockdown affected me as a not just as a footballer, but as a human being. And it might, when people come back to the pitch, it might give people a, um, a different opinion of how to, how to approach, approach playing, approach coaching, approach, approach mentoring. And it's, it's definitely something, I would say psychology is something that's really, really been important since we've been locked down. And especially for those who love the game, it's important to keep engaged with it in any way, shape or form. And I think the way you've done it with the core the core principles, the core values is, is really, really important because like you're saying, when they come back they're gonna they're gonna understand that that is a, a really, really big thing in, in their game as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um I mean I the the talent ID level two of the FA recently had um uh the head scout for Spurs for London there with and um, a former scout of Man United and got loads of good insight from those guys. And they were talking about character within the players that they're bringing to their academy. Yeah. Yes, okay, you, you can score loads of goals, you can dribble, you can head it and all the rest of it. But what are they like when they're under pressure? 
Um, and I, one of the things I shared on Twitter um, a few weeks ago was um, a spreadsheet that I used for assessing players. Um, and within that, I realized I hadn't put down enough of the psychological elements. Um, and so I've updated it now and added in a lot more, load more attributes. And it's things like, how, how does a player deal when they've got an opponent intimidating them? So we've all, lots of us will have played games, and I'm, I'm a forward. I've had centre-backs just constantly talk non-stop in my ear when the ball's nowhere near us. All, me all, all the names under the sun and ask me how my message is and stuff. You know, oh, just shut up. <laughs> but it, but it, it gets inside your head. And, and, and I, if, I, if I was ever going to make it as a pro, which is obviously not going to happen, but as a, you want your pros especially to be able to deal with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was watching the Gaza documentary a couple of nights ago and he said he got into the, uh, into the tunnel to play his first game against Wimbledon where there's that famous picture of Vinnie James grabbing yeah. his man. <laughs> and he said that even before that happened in the tunnel, all that Vinnie James was just staring at him and pointing at him going, it's you and me, fat boy. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I've watched it, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, how do you respond to that? If you can respond to that positively, i.e. you go out like Gaza did, you play your game, you get on the ball, you stay confident, you still want to receive it, even under all that intense intimidation, yeah. then you're going to be a hell of a player. Absolutely. Because you can have all the time in the world, but if you don't want the ball because you're scared about the guy that's marking you, then you're no good to anyone. Um, likewise with penalties. If someone's missed a penalty, how, are they, do they want the next penalty? Do they ask the teammate to take it? Yeah. How, how can you bounce back from from negative situations, how the players bounce back from uh, injuries, for example. And it shouldn't just be the player's responsibility to be able to handle these situations and to be able to bounce back from injury or take the next penalty or deal with intimidation. As coaches and as anyone who's working as a support member in that team and with those players should be helping them, their peers, their parents, their coaches, the psychologist, everyone should be helping these players grow in this area and develop in this area. Um, it's not just can you kick that ball straight; it's got to be all the all of the psychological side to it as well. Yeah, definitely. It's a really, really interesting conversation, and it's a conversation which will not just us, but other people will be having at the moment, and making sure that the welfare of everybody, uh, physically and exactly. psychologically, is is maintained. And when we get back into the pitch, hopefully, we see the same. The same person that we've seen before before lockdown. I think that's. I think you'd all agree it's, it's the most important thing. Um, so Aaron, thanks very much for joining me today. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion. It's it's always fascinating doing these podcasts with different people from different backgrounds. But just sitting listening to your journey as a coach, a mentor, and obviously what you know the reasons why you you think fullbacks are the most important position, and then obviously the psycho psychological side of the game. It's it's always fascinating listening to to these thoughts and these opinions so thanks for coming on today it's been an absolute pleasure thanks very much Scott thanks for having me um, and uh, yeah it'd be great to catch up again some other time brilliant yeah so thanks everyone for listening next week next Tuesday and Thursday we have a double webinar week um, so really excited for that it's going to be a busy week so hopefully you can join me for that and don't forget we have episodes 1 to 8 available to listen to now so until then join me next week thank you very much everyone